All right. Well, uh, great to have everyone here. Um, and great if, if folks did not see it or listen to it already, uh, we recorded an On the Metal episode where we recounted uh, the, our favorite, or some favorite, I should say. Not I mean, there's so many great ones out there, but some favorite moments. Adam, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing that. Uh, awesome. No, anyway. thank you for doing. It. I, I was I was like very honored to be on the show just because it's got uh, you know On the Metal has been great. I loved I loved listening to it. Um, I gotta say, I, I am still tittering over the uh, clarinet solo. Like it's it's just hard for me to think about an episode without. Anyway, little teaser. Do you know another actually great moment like that that I had forgotten about, and then I was just re-listening to it actually in preparation for this. Is the so the episode we did on where Arian had his tweet of the measurement two years in the making. And do you remember that that Eric was calling in and was outside with these like absolutely deafening midwestern crickets yes that, that were great and i actually love it i mean it's so great because eric is talking about it had this just this great you know talking about how stressful it was and what a rush it was and and how satisfying it was and then meanwhile you can just you can you can visualize him you can feel the humidity you know where he is it was just great <laughs> yeah um but that was a totally fun one, and you know, Arian, we had had you on talking about the the, the sidecar switch uh, in whenever that was late twenty twenty one, I guess. That's a whole blur. Um, but you know what we've not talked about at all is, and we've actually got lots of things about Oxide that we've not talked about at all, amazingly enough. But we really had not talked about any of the Upstack networking software because you know making a switch was really one, one of the things that we had, I would say, uh, required a lot of technical boldness. We had, I would say, some uncertainty in those earliest days of, of it felt like there was no good option. Like integrating a third party, third party switches felt like it was going to be uh, hugely problematic. But boy, doing our own switch just seemed ludicrously ambitious. So and, small plug, we have a blog post coming out on that soon. Oh, yeah, that'll, I'll be excited to read it, Arian. And Arian, yep. I mean, you were, you know, in those earliest days as, and we had basically come to the conclusion that we need to do a switch, even though uh, we have got no idea. What, I mean, Arian, as you, I think, have said many times before, we, we fortunately did not know how hard it is to do a switch. Uh, otherwise, we might not have done it. <laughs> yes. And we... Well, I was also the one who said, well, how hard can a switch be? That's kind of a solved problem at this point. So I definitely <laughs> ate those words. I know. I know. I know. I feel like that's like mine. of like, oh, we're just going to tweak some reference designs. That's another word. Yes. I can time machine and oh. slap myself. It's oh, like, me. Oh. oh, exactly. But, you know, you've got to have that, like, a little bit of naivete. And, you know, I think one of the things that is great about having a big, ambitious, bold vision and then, and then projecting that vision is people are attracted to that and that we've had a lot of people who've come to oxide because they see what we're doing and they say hey i want to like not only am i interested in that but that like that really speaks to me and there's a, a part of this that I, I think i can really help on that is part of my own personal vision and part of what i, I love about what we're doing is there are that for every person at oxide there is a part of themselves and part of their own personal vision that is in what we're doing and that is very true of what we're doing. And, you know, Ryan Goodfellow's here. And, and Rye, you were, I mean, I, I think this is true for a lot of people at Oxide, but it's especially true for you that you saw what we were doing. And you, I, I just remember in your materials, you're like, I, I think you're building a switch out of P4. And 
boy, that's exactly what I want to go do. So, Brian, could you talk a little bit about your background and, and kind of how you got to Oxide? Maybe we'll pick it up from there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty much uh, exactly how I first saw Oxide was I, I think I was actually at a conference at Sandia National Labs, uh, and I was there giving a talk on some network test beds I had been building for like some government projects and things like that. And uh, Ron Minich was also at that conference and we were, we were talking about a few different things. And I think at that point he had mentioned the on the metal podcast, which was actually my first exposure to oxide. <laughs> and so then like a little bit later, I, I started to check that out. And then I was like, Oh man, this is, this is like, these are my people. This is, this is, this is really awesome. And then uh, I started to look more in depth uh, into what was available on the Oxide website in terms of what folks were doing. And then I saw the P4 switch sitting there staring me in the face. I think it was in this like little subtitle somewhere like hidden on the website. Like it has this big, beautiful picture of this rack. And then there's like this switch that's sitting in the middle of it. I'm sitting there like, hmm, I wonder what that is. Is that some kind of Melanox ASIC in there? Is it like a Spectrum 2, a Spectrum 3? And then I saw the Tofino. I was like, oh, okay. So this is like a, this is a fully programmable architecture. And like where I had come from in terms of like building network tests, large scale network test beds for like research programs and things like this, where people are doing network research and they're doing like absolutely like batshit insane things with networking. And we have to write the network code that transports all that crazy stuff that people are doing inside of the networks in a testbed environment to evaluate whether their crazy ideas are going to work out or not. Uh, and it was a very fun and rewarding job, but it also very clearly demonstrated the limits of what we could do with fixed function networking equipment. Like when weird mm -hmm. stuff would happen, if we were operating like a really large scale EVPN network and absolutely everything looks green across the board. Like every, all the routing protocols are green, like everything looks good, but packets are just not moving in the way that they're supposed to be moving. And like, you just go down this road of terror of like, all these people are depending on you and your infrastructure to do their jobs every day. And like things just aren't working and, and you get down to the ASIC and it's just a black box. And the only thing that you can do is talk to your vendor and be like, what's up, man? Like, what, what's going on here? We've done everything can. And then it turns out to be an ASIC bug and you get a firmware update and the problem goes away and you have no idea what happened. And That is so frustrating. And I mean, these ASICs are extraordinarily complicated. They are historically very proprietary. There's a huge stack in there. So to kind of not be able to get that, that certainty about what actually happened here is, I, I, I mean, obviously very frustrating. Yeah, and it just makes the network kind of like incomprehensible at a very low, a low level. Like you have these like declarative APIs, like you have like Linux switch dev, you have all the wonderful work that happened with Cumulus Linux to kind of like open up the, the white label switching environments and have these nice declarative Linux flavored APIs. But at the end of the day, that's all declarative. And you don't have a real good mental model of like what is happening to every single packet that's going through the switch? Like what's the programming model? How do I actually understand what's going on here? If I'm operating a very busy network and I'm running up against soft limits on the ASIC, like going back to the EPA, EVPN example, um, if I am running into head-end replication limits because I'm blasting an L2 broadcast domain over a layer three network, like what's happening there? What is the fallback mode? Like how am I gracefully falling back onto maybe some type of multicast or something like that? And you just don't know. Like it's it's not specified well enough and you just don't understand how your networks are operating, which from 
an operator's perspective is extremely frustrating. And when I saw what Oxide was doing, I was like, that's a step in the right direction. Like we can build something out of P4, which from my perspective was mostly in the academic space at that point. I hadn't seen a whole lot coming to market where we where people were actually using P4 as like a mechanism to give operators more comprehensible networks. And I saw this as an opportunity to take a step in that direction and be a part of a really exciting team that was making that a reality. So, and I mean, you mentioned P4. P4 is really at the epicenter of what we're doing here. Can you describe a little bit about P4 for folks for whom it may be new? Yeah, so um, P4 is uh, a, a data plane programming language uh, for switch ASICs and sometimes for uh, NIC ASICs. And so basically what P4 allows you to do is uh, describe in um, a series of controllers uh, for every single packet that's going through your switch what needs to happen to this packet? It allows you to define a set of tables that can be shared with a control plane, whether these are like routing tables or NDP tables or things like this, where a control plane that's running a protocol like BGP or NDP for IPv6 can start to populate these tables. And as packets flow through your data plane in one of these switches, they run through this P4 code um, that is essentially operating on a packet by packet basis over every single packet. It runs at the line rate of the switch, depending on how the switch ASIC is architected. This might be broken up into like multiple pipeline stages uh, for every single packet that's moving through the switch. But you more or less have complete control over every single packet that's running through the switch. It is more of a constrained language than something like, like C or Rust. So there's no loops or anything like that. And so there are sacrifices and expressiveness that are made for the sake of having uh, some level of determinism and making sure that your pipelines can actually execute at line rate. Uh, but it it does allow you to have that, that level of programmability and expression in how your data plan is actually executing. And, yeah, and Adam, to, to you... drive home real, real yep. quick the point of how programmable this actually is, is there are, you, there are these generic parsers that you implement. So... These switches do not have a concept of an Ethernet frame. An Ethernet frame is really a thing that sort of exists at the Surtees level, so that the Surtees can parse frames into into the device, and then. But so you have to tell the thing what an Ethernet frame looks like. And for example, Western Digital has built this cache coherency protocol between CPUs using these, where they just encapsulate basically memory requests in Ethernet frames, and then they use a completely custom thing to parse these requests and then do a memory coherency thing in the switch and then like push packets out to specific CPUs. Um, but to, to so, so this, this can be as programmable as you can parse a packet coming in that has two integers and you can parse that as two integers. You can add these two integers and then you can emit a packet with the result of that addition. And that you can do that at, at line rate. So that's that, amazing. Th this is, this is, there's really interesting things you can do with this. Limited within that language, but uh, things that you definitely cannot do in software at these speeds, because the, you well, can do this at you know six terabits, per, uh, six uh, yeah six packets per uh, six billion packets per second. Yeah, with, and so someone in chat is asking, yeah, what does at line rate mean? And like at line rate means really really fast. So yeah, do you want to talk about some of the speeds and feeds a little bit, Arian, in terms of what line rate means for these things? Well, in this case, the, the, we are using to build with the, 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 great, the largest and greatest of the Tofino 2 lineup from Intel, which is a 64-port uh, ASIC uh, supporting up to 12 terabits of traffic uh, given appropriate packet sizes. 
but really it will do uh, uh, up to 12, uh, sorry, up to 6 billion packets per second uh, with all four pipelines enabled and all ports enabled, everything going full tilt. Uh, and needless to say, that is a lot of data moving through a single ASIC. Um, it's a lot of data. And so when, when, when we talk about a programmable switch, programmable network infrastructure, what we're, the programmability really, as you say, Arian, really goes down to the very, very bottom of the stack. This thing is not born knowing anything about software protocols and so on. All of that stuff is going to be given to it as P4 programs. And then it's going to be able to do, and it's inc- extraordinarily powerful. And I mean, we are still, we are, we are big, big believers in P4. And, yeah, and it let, so it lets you parse into packets up to about 1,200, oh, sorry, uh, 500 bytes into a packet. And then you can then emit, you can modify headers, emit new headers, plus your payload. And so you can, you can inject things, you can, you can strip things, you can do operations on, on things and, and build new things. Um, I'm assuming that Rai is going to talk a little bit more about DMM later. Uh, and so, but then more importantly, all that happens. So, so things like uh, NAT or, or um, uh, you can add telemetry headers or the, those are all things that we, we do here, uh, all at line rate using these, pre, these, these pre-populated tables. Um, but you can go as wild as there is a concept P4 program that takes a, a DNS packet, reads it as if it that, that 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 understands the different segments to get there so that yeah the ip header and the tcp header etc detects that it is a, D, a tcp uh, a udp packet for a dns request and then pulls out the actual request that you're making and then you can use the tables as a small lookup table to actually generate dns responses at line rate so you can build this ridiculously fast dns uh, um, uh, relay or a dns resolver for potentially your authoritative DNS server, if you wanted to do that. Um, right. The problem is no longer DNS, folks. I've got the DNS monster. Yeah, here. it is absolutely limited. But, but the, the, the point I want to drive home is that this is a fully, this is a programmable thing. There are definitely limits, but this, there is very little fixed function sort of functionality here. And whether, like, you can build tables that, prioritize uh, some kind of VPN thing or some kind of layer two switching thing or some kind of labeled routing thing or, and you can size these tables according to the data sets that you're gonna be working with uh, within yeah. limits of what this ASIC can, can absorb. Um, because there are different, and- different variations with different sizes of, or different stages, meaning different like uh, larger or smaller amounts of RAM available effectively to do this with. Which is really powerful. And Ryan, I mean, when you say that like you'd kind of reach the end of the road with fixed function, I assume that part of it is that like these fixed functions ultimately do have fixed area. They've got kind of fixed amount. Someone else has made the decision about how the resources of the silicon are going to be used. And really the future needs to decide that dynamically. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, uh, that that's definitely a part of the the fixed function ASICs that are available today. So uh, oftentimes they'll allocate like a certain chunk of their TCAM uh, to like multicast. There will be a certain chunk of TCAM to like access control lists. Uh, there will be a chunk of TCAM or SRAM that is dedicated uh, to IPv6 routing or IPv4 routing. And you just kind of have to, I mean, some of the newer ASICs are a little bit tunable in this regard, saying how much do you want to allocate to to certain functions, but you still have to live within those constraints. And with the Tofino, we can decide pretty much exactly how we want to do that. Um, and so if we have wildly different use cases that are 
coming at our, our rack switches in terms of do we need to have uh, a lot of space allocated for NAT or do we have someone that is trying to use BDP and get full IPv4 routing tables with a million routes? What does that look like? Uh, and so we, we have a lot of latitude there in terms of how we're actually going to be able to handle those different use cases. And it means which the opposite too, which is we do not care for, we use Geneve labels in our underlay network. We do not care. There's a competing or like a complementary standard or like a competing standard on a VXLAN. We do not care about VXLAN functionality. Our P4 program does not have that built in. And so we do not spend any resources in this case on that functionality right. that, that we would never use. So we can, right. we, can, we can try to maximize the use of this ASIC according to, to what we feel this thing should do or to support the applications our customers want rather than what, yeah, like you said, some, some product definition group or like some designers have put together uh, five years ago because that's how long these things were designed at some point. And so they've made choices that may not be applicable anymore, which means that with this more programmable nature, you can, you can push a switch platform much for much longer potentially because you can adapt it to your changing workloads or to your changing protocol needs. It will, and potentially dynamically too, right? I mean, this can actually be changed. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 you you need to reload the, the 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 data plane, so it's not like it definitely hasn't like it takes it's time to do that. It is yeah. disruptive. It, it's not seamless, but yes, you can you can probably reload this in a couple seconds. So yes, it it is reloadable in some form, and and so if you can if you can absorb the disruption, then yes, you can do this somewhat dynamically. So, which is extremely cool, and there's just a lot of potential here, and I think we we saw a lot of that potential, but of course, it also means that it's like, hey, the good news is that this thing is entirely programmable, and that's very powerful. The bad news is we got to go program it, right? So, there's a <laughs> lot that we need to go do. And, and Adam, do you remember the Greg Papadopoulos, who was the CTO at Sun, I don't know, the, he, he had this line for me that I thought was really good, that he said that all of the big breakthroughs in system software also have their own programming language associated with them, which of yeah, course- I remember that, spot on, yeah. You, right, of course, we obviously strongly agree to that because, of, because <laughs> of, I, mean, I, I could not agree with you more strongly that uh, because we, uh, we obviously did that with D&D &D Trace, but I, I feel we definitely see that with P4, where P4 really represents a lot of wisdom from a bunch of folks who've thought about this and have kind of done it the old way, done it with fixed function, and P4 really represents a lot of that wisdom. And so now we've got to go, uh, we've got to go build this whole thing. And so while, while Aryan and co are, are building the actual switch and getting hardware to work, Ryan, can you talk about like how uh, you and, and Nils and some of the other folks started getting going on, like, what does it actually mean to build the software stack on this? Yeah, and so uh, a really good spot to pick up is actually where the, the sidecar episode left off, uh, which I think was about a year ago now, which is crazy to think about. Uh, but at that point, um, I mean, the, the rack switch was just coming together in terms of the hardware. And because of the Tofino simulator, uh, which is a piece of technology that Intel uh, delivers along with the Tofino, that uh, it basically allows you to simulate the Tofino at kind of like a hardware level. Like the representation it's working off of here is like a hardware RTL type of level. But you can use their compiler. You can compile your P4 uh, targeting this simulator and then run it on top of the simulator to be able to uh, start to build up software infrastructure on top of the Tofino without actually having to run on a Tofino, whether that's on a reference platform or whether it's on the highly customized 
uh, integrated switch that we're building for the rack. And so because of that, by that point in time, uh, so Nils, uh, who's our engineer that's uh, doing a lot of the development for uh, the switch drivers in the operating system and the demons that run the management plane for the switch and our APIs that drive the switch, like a lot of that had been defined at that point uh, using that Tofino simulator. But one of the things about the Tofino simulator was that since it was representing the ASIC at a hardware level, it was not very fast. Uh, and so you <laughs> would max, yeah, to put it lightly, right? You would you would max out at like a few hundred, maybe a thousand packets per second. And then you would see latencies start to spike into like the tens, or if you weren't running TCP or you had back off, you're just running straight up UDP through this thing. Like you could see latency spikes into the hundreds of seconds and then it would just kind of like grind to a halt. And so it was an absolutely wonderful tool for understanding how our P4 code was executing kind of in the small, so to speak. But the moment that we had to kind of step out of that bubble and start to say, okay, we actually want to start implementing our network end-to-end -end at like a system level, maybe not like a rack scale level, but say we want to have like six compute sleds represented as virtual machines. We want to represent uh, the sidecar that's executing our P4 code and the compute sled that's connected to that sidecar switch over PCI Express that's driving that switch. Like we want to have all of that together in one environment to be able to actually have things working end-to-end. Uh, the simulator wasn't really going to provide us with that capability. Even if we even tried running it on like these super beefy machines with like, you know, 96 cores and like hundreds of gigs of RAM. And we just, you know, it, it was a non-starter. And so we kind of had to, to take a step back and say, okay, so how are we going to start developing things at a system level? How are we going to start developing our routing protocols? How are we going to make sure that our NDP implementation that's running through the switch for IPv6 is actually going to work with the Illumos host operating system NDP that's sitting right next to it in the network. And so that was an interesting point in space where we were just kind of like, you know, what are we gonna do? And then so um, well, I had been it, writing. You just before go you get there, because I do think I just, I, I wanna make sure we're giving the simulator its due because it is, this is a cycle accurate ASIC simulator, which is something that, first of all, most vendors do not like allow off their kind of off the property. <laughs> Uh, and the fact that we had this software from Intel, and as, as I told that that team, this is I, this is the best software that Intel makes. Prove me wrong, um, because on the one hand, we were only able to get several hundred packets a second through the thing. On the other hand, Adam, it goes to the the uh, you know one of your favorite lines uh, that is the uh, we prefer to think of the Oasis as half full rather than half empty. <laughs> The because it is remarkable that this thing works at all to the point that when what we were able to do, what you were able to do, you and team were able to do with the simulator I was stunning. We could that we got so much working with the simulator that you actually do get to the point like the actual problem with the simulator is that we can't actually it and it, of course it's never going to be much if you've ever done any kind of psycho, psycho accurate simulation in anything. You know that if, that if you are only at 100x degradation, is really, really hard to get to. And 1,000x is going to be much more reasonable. So the fact that we were kind of right in that 100,000x degradation is kind of, that's pretty impressive, honestly. So Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's completely mind-boggling. And I mean, when you had TCP running through it, and TCP was doing back-off because it was, it was detecting congestion, then it actually kind of worked SSH out. through it. You were running yeah, SSH. It was it was amazing. Kinda, yeah, it was working okay. You could do like an apt update and you know, uh it might take all night, but it would it would it would eventually work. 
Right. Am uh, I remembering so, this right? That it was it was single single core as well. Uh, there was a multi core version of it. We we had a lot of issues with that. Um, and, <laughs> well, because um, because multi core RTL simulation is, yeah. is a notoriously difficult problem notorious, because, yeah. because because you very quickly need synchronization primitives that basically undo any any advantages that you might have off of multi multi core like that your multiple cores would provide you and because you need those synchronization primitives everything else becomes way slower so in in their defense it is it, it is a model of the actual hardware and it and it emits very detailed logs as a packet travels through this thing how each of the parsing steps work how how the lookup steps work so you can very you get a very detailed trace for every packet going through like what it does and how it got to that that decision point and how it then figured out which which quote unquote port to switch out of, which is um, incredibly cool. You can and it, just and debug it worked. It, yeah, well, and it worked if you loaded it. So it, it's a thing that would run on a Linux machine. And so if you had a Linux machine with several network interfaces, you could attach those network interfaces to the virtual interfaces of that switch and see your actual packets from outside the machine travel into in, like you you could send them into the machine. Wild. Run through the run through the model. See all these traces of exactly how the packet was classified, parsed, and classified by your P4 program. How the decisions were made, lookups that happened in the tables, and then how it then modified the packet potentially, and then pushed it out again on one of those real interfaces, and it would just pop up on the other end, and you could Wireshark it on your client machine. And so, it was it, it is a really impressive tool. But yes, because of all that accuracy, it is not particularly fast. So if I you Probably fair to say that we were pushing it harder than anyone else. I don't know that any other. No, anyone else who would actually do something like like some real stuff get uh, and gets gets the look, we'll run into that eventually. Like once you get through, uh, I'm 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 trying to get through like debugging my P4 program and I'm trying to run a little bit more traffic. You'll you'll hit that. So everyone hits that eventually, and yep. that's the point where you then need a different solution. Yeah, so ride there. I just wanted to inject some of the, some praise for the simulator, uh, just because I think it is so extraordinarily impressive. But as you say, it's not. It's it's really impressive that we're able to get it to work at all, and that it does that it does work so well. But it's not actually it, describe some of the ways in which the the deeply suboptimal performance really impedes development of the software we need to develop. Yeah, I mean, so it is totally a fantastic tool. It's just, it's not the right tool for particular jobs. And the the job that we were stepping into at this point in time was uh, system level end-to-end -end type of development. And when you start putting uh, a bunch of, hooking up a bunch of compute sleds to your simulated switch, uh, then you have a bunch of protocols that are just starting to run all on their own, right? You have NDP running for IPv6, which is turning out a few packets per second. You have your routing protocols that are running that are doing keep live messages. And so by the time that we're at like over, you know, 10 of these things that are hooked up to uh, an emulated switch, we're, we're probably in the neighborhood of at least a few hundred packets per second that are going through this thing. And, and that's about the limit of what we can get to in terms of pushing packets through the simulator. And so you can forget about running any type of uh, TCP flows or Geneva encapsulated flows or anything like that. Once you get to this point, we, we basically got to the point where it's like, okay, we can, we can stand up the network, we can get the simulator running, and then everything grinds to a halt once you know, just the basic automated protocol start running. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the decision point that we found ourselves at. And the challenge that we've got in front of us at that point, and the challenge that we've had for indeed the entire history of the company is how do you develop the software that's going to run on the hardware without the hardware in hand? And even when you have the hardware in hand, 
you might not have enough of it for everybody. You may not have enough for CI. We always, for at every layer of the stack, we're always asking ourselves, how can we simulate, emulate the layer beneath us? Yeah, exactly. And so what we decided to do at this point uh, was actually do the, the, the full crazy thing, which is write our own V4 <laughs> compiler. Um, and this kind of grew out of like a, a nights and weekends project that I was doing of we were using P4 at work and I was trying to use P4 at home with like compiling to some RISC-V cores that I was tinkering around with. And so I, I had a little bit of forward momentum on this already. Uh, and I was like, you know what? We can probably just compile P4 to Rust and then have that Rust code as the implementation of our packet processing pipelines and use it wherever we want. And so, but just taking a step back real quick, if you're familiar with the P4 ecosystem, like this sounds even more crazy because in the P4 ecosystem, we have uh, the P4C compiler that's maintained by the community. Um, there's the behavioral model version two, which is kind of like the execution substrate that exists around uh, the output of that P4 compiler. And the, the question is, why not use that? Like, and, and that's a very valid question. And for us, it really comes down to uh, where do we need to execute this P4 code? And in the sidecar episode, one of the things that Arian uh, had mentioned was uh, the level of fidelity that we get from the Fafino simulator in terms of how it presents itself to higher layers of the stack, including the operating systems drivers, uh, including the uh, Intel SDK that allows us to manipulate uh, P4 tables in real time, like that was all very high fidelity and high fidelity enough that we could actually run uh, our OS stack uh, and our ASIC management stack on top of all of that. So that was something that was critically important uh, that we really didn't want to lose. Um, but then kind of on the other end of the fidelity spectrum, we also have this development environment at Oxide that is really, really important. It's kind of like an Oxide in a box environment. And it's it's what a lot of our control plane engineers use uh, to evaluate systems uh, in the control plane software substrate. And so basically what developers do there is they have uh, an Illumos box, which Illumos is the operating system that is at the core of our product. Uh, and they're able to deploy the entire control plane onto that box, uh, which includes uh, the ability to launch VMs. It has the entire Oxide API and they can do all of their work in this environment. It's not necessarily super important to have like high switch level fidelity in that environment but we definitely need the network functions that implement the core of our network in that environment. So these are two very different environments where we need to have the logic of our P4 executing. And what we really want there is to be able to compile freestanding P4 code and use that code in both environments. I'm sorry, Brian, were you saying something? No, I was just, I mean, the, 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 this is a problem where it's like, you can't, you, that needs to be in a lot of places that's not gonna have specific hardware. So we need, we needed a different solution. Yeah, and so and when you look at the the P4C and the the BVM2 model, right? You P4C produces like this declarative JSON representation, and BVM2, which is like this Python C++ thing, basically ingests all that and acts as an execution uh, engine over that kind of declarative representation of a P4 program. Um, but that really just wasn't going to work for us, and so. In order to get the first environment that we that we wanted, uh, in terms of having that very high fidelity interface to exercise our whole networking stack up to down uh, on the switch itself and on the uh, compute sled that's actually attached to the switch over PCI Express, we decided that we wanted to implement uh, a virtual ASIC 
inside of a hypervisor. Uh, and so this was a great opportunity to dog food even more oxide technology. So if you're if you're coming from like the Linux side of things, uh, there's QMU and KVM. And what we have in the oxide stack that's kind of analogous to that is we have Beehive and Propolis, or Propolis is kind of like the user space emulation side of things. And it's written entirely in Rust. And so if we have this X4C P4 compiler that can compile this P4 into Rust and it can it can compile it into like a dynamic library and we can dynamically load that from other Rust code. Uh, then we have this nice substrate that we can actually consider to be like an ASIC inside the hypervisor. We can we can expose that ASIC to the guest operating system that's also running Alumos. It's running our full switching stack in terms of the OS drivers, in terms of the daemons that actually drive the ASIC. And we have this very high fidelity substrate that for most purposes in our system software actually represents uh, what uh, an actual hardware-based system looks like. And so uh, that's what we wound up doing in, in this environment. Uh, and it's actually worked out phenomenally well. So the- It's just extraordinary. I mean, this is, it is so rare to feel to have this level of fidelity for, certainly for, for an ASIC that is this complicated. I mean, it's just extraordinary to be able to actually, to be able to virtualize all of this and be able to develop that software. It's amazing. Yeah, and so where we're sitting at with this today is uh, we can get about a gigabit per port um, on the the code that's been compiled and is in this harness inside of the hypervisor. Um, I think we're not actually limited by the code itself. We're more Im limited by the I.O. path. So we're using something called uh, DLPI for our I.O. path. That's the uh, data link provider interface. It's kind of a packet at a time type of interface. And so I think that's where our, our gigabit limit per port uh, is is coming through, um, but the, the the payoff here is that a gigabit is plenty, uh, or a gigabit per port is plenty for the kind of environment where we need to actually be able to test things uh, end to end and see how the network is unfolding. And so today we can do things like test multipath routing algorithms, uh, where we have uh, our switches, our, our rack has two switches inside of it, and every single sled is connected to both switches, and so that creates a multipath routing problem. And when we want to look at that end-to-end -end from the routing protocols that are running on our compute sleds to the ones that are running on the switches and how all that traffic works end-to-end, -end, uh, we can actually do that now at about gigabit speeds and evaluate how those algorithms are working, and it just it presents uh, a really nice environment for doing all of this. Yeah, that is amazing. Maybe now is a good time to get either Levon in here or Ben in here. I mean, Levon, when you uh, I mean, when you came to Oxide, and you were also coming from you know a, a yet a different uh, networking background, had suffered a lot of these same problems, um, and uh, you know when uh, when you came aboard, I think one of the the first things that you were targeting on was was how do I get kind of pull all of this stuff together so we can actually. Um, use it in CI, we can actually uh, develop on it. Uh, do you want to describe some of the work that's been involved there? Yeah, so, uh, so I think when I joined Oxide like last July or August or so. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a time and, warp. <laughs> so like everyone on this call who is like, you know, his mind is getting blown, that was me. And then they said, hey, you're going to put all this stuff together. And like, <laughs> automate it and i'm like okay um and but no it was it was one it was just kind of jaw-dropping to see how much work had been done in just two years from the actual 
Sidecar, Switch, and Tofino ASIC, all the way up to these different components like OPTE and uh, the, the P4 compiling pipeline and, and uh, some of the other components that we're probably going to get into as we talk about like how does the control plane interact with these things. Um, but what Rai introduced me to was uh, kind of a virtual topology building tool that was also created um, that we were going to use to kind of get some of these things sorted out. And uh, essentially, it, it was just kind of diving in the ocean and swimming because I'm, <laughs> I'm learning a new operating system. You know, I'm learning uh, uh, Lumos. Um, and it's there's enough overlap with a lot of other, like, Unix and Linux style systems, but then there are some things that are different. There are some things that are really cool. Um, and then just kind of hoovering up all of the information, they're, they're blasting at me with the fire hose. Um, but the biggest thing that was so exciting about all of this was coming from the background that I was in before, which was your traditional data center, public cloud, private cloud uh, automation. Uh, it's uh, there, there are just some real painful things that come with gluing a bunch of disparate vendor infrastructure together. So, like, I, I worked at Rackspace for a few years. I worked at Equinix Metal for for a little over a year. Um, and the thing is, is, like, you're trying to take several different switches that have several different APIs and pick function hardware, uh, and, and the vendors are changing how these things work. You know, every software updating, you have no idea what's going on in a box, just like what I was talking about earlier. Um, and then you're also trying to get it to communicate, or you're, you're trying to get it to behave in concert with things that you don't really have deep integration with. Like, you don't have integration with the server hardware. You don't know precisely how, what state it's going to end up in. You just kind of know what state you hope it's going to end up in and everything. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so you're like, well, you know, this is what they asked for. Hopefully it ends up there. And if it ends up there, then the packets will flow. But if not, you know, well, they're going to blame the network and then we got to go and look and see what happens. So coming into this thing where they're like, oh yeah, OPT lives in the kernel and it's going to make sure that certain things end up a certain way. And, um, it, and then, we, we, we've uh, talked about OPTE a couple of times. You want to just describe that briefly? Uh, so the, the high-level, I guess, explanation is it's kind of like the distributed virtual switch that lives in the kernel in the oxide hypervisors. So um, basically all of these VMs, when they're created, um, a lot of the rules for how their traffic should be handled will get programmed into OPTE. OPTE will... Uh, end up leveraging the the uh, NICs that we're using, which are the uh, T6, T7. I get lost on some of the T6. Yeah, T7 one day, but T6 for now. Yeah, yeah. The Chelsea NICs. Um, yeah, the Chelsea NICs, and um, and so since our gimlets um have the cap capability to interact with this uh, Tofino based switch. Like some of the gimlets will realize that, hey, I have a hardware connection to the Tofino switch. So as things happen on the gimlets, I can tell the switch what, what's happening and the switches are ready for this traffic um, when these VMs come up. So the servers and the switches are integrated at the software level, at the control plane level. And so you're not trying to take uh, a switch OS that knows jack squat about anything that happens <laughs> on any server. And, and have a server OS that was never designed to know jack spot about anything that's happened on a switch and, and try to 
closing together with some Python code or Ansible scripts is like that nightmare kind of goes away. And it's like if the Gimlet is like authoritative and says, okay, I'm creating this VM. And as long as the process of creating this VM is successful, the process of configuring the switch is also part of that process. So either they both succeed or they both fail. Um, and, and that just creates what I think is going to be a, a tremendous difference. And I kind of like went, I think, off the rails. Uh, I just kind of, the whole thing excites me, so I just kind of go wild. But, uh, <laughs> what, what, one clarification, Levon. Uh, we've, we've been using the name Gimlet a bunch. So just to be clear, Gimlet is our server. But uh, not to be confused, because of the, the sidecar and the Tofino are, are kind of the, the CPU, as Brian likes to say, uh, gets it its coffee and it just goes at line rate. Um, rather than in uh, some types of server, uh, pardon me, switches, we decided rather than uh, having a, a general purpose CPU plugged into this Tofino dedicated exclusively to switch purposes, we have all these gimlets, all these servers, and then two of them are special in that they have this PCI link that was alluded to. That's right. We call those scrimlets. And yep. we, it is uh, just a PCIe peripheral, as Aaron is saying in the chat. I think it, I'm not sure it's the largest PCIe peripheral ever made, but it's definitely, it's much larger than the actual, uh, the compute slides. It's a, the and it's just like card. a by, it's just like a by four link, right? Like if you're thinking that mm -hmm. this is like a GPU, it's, it, it, I mean, there's, there's some analogs there in terms of like your, your, the CPU is just bringing it its coffee and getting out of the way. But the the bandwidth between uh, Tofino and the general purpose CPU, it, you know, doesn't need to the the sort of extremes that a GPU needs. That's right. It's pretty light. Um, and so yeah, I mean, so but Levon, that was a great tour of and you know, as you're talking about that in terms of the the kind of the, the switch operating systems that are out there, the network operating systems that are out there. I have wondered, I have to say many times, how does anyone get all that stuff to, to interoperate? Because, it, I mean, that must be, I mean, it is a challenge for us where we are controlling all sides of this. I can't imagine what it's like trying to get uh, even open source things to work together, let alone proprietary things. And, you know, you just wonder how anything works at all. And then it's kind of less of a surprise to know that, well, it often doesn't actually, it often like is it's broken or it breaks in strange ways or it's, or it takes a long time to actually get functional. There was I mean, an you... interesting tweet from, uh, there was, there was this, this thread going on a couple of days ago, uh, about, you know, moving from, from, from cloud to on-prem and I don't know, a bunch of stuff back and forth, but there was someone who, uh, righteously pointed out that what we don't really, what, what most people don't really realize is how much work the, the large hyperscalers have done in order to make their network the way operate as well as it does. And part of that is all that work, what you're just describing. How do you, how do you control this large distributed machine that consists of thousands of switches to make sure that all the, all, all the right configuration is in all these tables in order for these things to work. And uh, having seen a little bit of that, how it worked at, at Facebook, now Meta, there's a large body of software to push that around and to get that in these, in these, in the, in their, they're using a lot of Broadcom uh, ASICs to get that into those ASICs because, uh, and they've, they've, they've written that all from scratch. Uh, because right, that, and it's stuff that's like not open source, right? In, in general, it's like they. Uh, it mean, is. Been, it is not even so much about open source. It is so specific to what they're doing because it relies right. on so much existing Facebook infrastructure. Because there's basically a whole PubSub model on top of that in order to push route information around. So they use this. Uh, um, I forgot what the routing protocol was they developed at some point for this. That is basically 
the complement to BGP. So they're distilling some BGP information and they have link state information that they compute and they push these things together through a pub subsystem and then switches are subscribed to that and then get that that gets pushed into ASICs. It's a, it's, it's a large and very complicated piece of machinery in order to make that work. Yeah, and I, I and I think that you know as we kind of got further and further down the path, I mean, I feel not that we had, I mean, I think we kind of, we knew that we had to integrate the switch, but boy, this is just not something we've looked back on. At I mean, this is absolutely the right decision. And, you mean in terms of rather than buying some off the shelf oh switch? My god. Oh my god! Oh my god! I mean, it's a yeah. fate too terrible to contemplate. Um, no. But it's, I mean, it, it, it's handing someone else our fate, right? I mean, exactly as as Rye was alluding to earlier. It means that all of, you know we'd be sub- subject to all of these completely undebuggable problems, and uh, you know relying on what would need to be an extremely good partner to bail us out in these incredibly hard situations. Well, so, forget you, running any software, just getting the thing cabled up in a sensible totally, manner, in, in the, like physically having DAC cables between servers and switches. That would like we would have not been able to build the the, the cable backplane that we have today. That that would just not have existed. And can I ask, it, it also seems like, you know, uh, uh, Aryan, you, you mentioned how Meta was able to build something very, you know, purpose-built. It seems like to a degree, we don't have to build all the features and functionality of an Arista switch or a, a Cisco switch, because we, we know, you know, everything that's going to be plugged into this switch. So it, it seems like there's, in some ways, I mean, obviously there's a ton to build, but we don't need the the same kind of long list of features that a general purpose switch might need. Well, that's also why they decided to do white label switches and why everyone who has ultimately done of that scale who has done white label switches does that. You realize that what they really needed was really high high performance. Like they want IP performance. They want to just push as many IP packets around as they could possibly can at the lowest possible price. And once you start stripping all these enterprise features that are all these that a lot of the switch vendors are providing, you know, Cisco particularly is serves that whole market. But then you know, there's Juniper and there's 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 other switch vendors with lots of different things that are maybe really good in enterprise. But that you, if you once you start getting once you distill that down to, I want to run a fabric just as fast as we can, and then we're going to layer a lot of the smart functionality more in software on each individual machine because the other part that that is often overlooked is that the 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 reason a network at google or a network at facebook works the way it works is that every host in a network actually participates in that by running some active component that allows a centralized controller to steer traffic from those hosts so that they can actually make decisions about large flows where they go when they go how they go um, and that is just, that doesn't exist in many environments uh, other than those environments where you have that amount of control over each of these individual pieces. And what, yes, once you have that, that control over these pieces, you can very aggressively cut away all the things that you don't need and you can focus on making it just do the thing that you really want and then do that as fast and as best as it can do that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, and it just gives us extraordinary kind of potential. But of course, there's a lot of integration to go do. I mean, Ben, do you want to speak? I mean, you've been right on the right of the coalface, you know, I, 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 uh, in terms of actually getting all of the stuff to to integrate. Uh, do you want to talk about some of the adventures there in terms of, of getting all these things to cooperate? Yeah, sure. Um, it's uh, it's certainly been a challenge. <laughs> so I think I think the hardest thing has been. Um, sort of what Rai was talking to earlier, just so much of it is being built at the same time 
um, that there is a lot of bootstrapping that's required where you have to mock out certain interfaces or, or kind of have hacks that seem to be short-lived that end up being much longer lived than you had intended um, to kind of make, make the system work at least to an approximation of, of the end state that you want. Um, I think though that actually we've been really fortunate to have kind of uh, folks like Ryan and Levon who have, have done a lot of that integration previously, I think in, in kind of being able to build up a lot of these simulation tools, um, you know, being able to virtualize so much of the stack has really made that actually much, much easier than you might have thought. Um, I think one of the things that's been really useful, at least to say OPTE, for example, actually is Ryan Zazeski, before he, uh, before he left a few months ago, he did um, some kernel testing stuff that was really useful that hadn't been, been done before. That's been very, very helpful, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the best thing has just been having strong tests, really kind of useful simulation and emulation tools for, for kind of mocking up the parts of the system that you don't want to, you don't want to consider when you're building, building some part of it um, that you want to abstract away. Um, that's just been incredibly useful. And Ben, for the work that you've done, I mean, I, I think we've seen this in lots of other parts of the stack, but I think it's especially true here, where you've got a bunch of different components and you've got kind of one body of work that is crossing a bunch of different components. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. Um, so, I. So we, I mean, kind of practically speaking, what we really have is this kind of main program called the Sled Agent, which which comes from an older name for the gimlets, um, or another name for the gimlets. We just often call them compute sleds or just sleds. But but this program really is sort of the the. I'm not sure what the analogy is here, but it's it's kind of the the. Um, Part of an individual sled, and so it really is kind of managing all of the the individual compute um, resources that you might have on that machine. And so what we've really tried to do is put in a lot of um, debugability and kind of the ability to introspect what that thing is doing, and and uh, really sort of understand how that system is operating and and what it's kind of doing in terms of marshaling the hardware resources that are available. Um, so we've been able to put in a lot, for example. Dtrace probes to understand what OPTE is doing, uh, or um, what uh, the sled agent itself is doing when it tries to provision certain resources. What Propolis, the hypervisor, is doing. Um, the Dtrace probes there have been sort of super useful, just in terms of understanding exactly what kind of parts of it are actually running at various pieces points in time. Um, so I, I think I think kind of the the fact that we've really written all of these different components from scratch, I, th I think despite the work that that entails, it really does mean that we can instrument it in a way that you can't really do with other systems. I think a lot of people have, a common theme here has been uh, how much of a black box certain, you know, yeah. vendor supply parts And Levon are. mentioning like yeah. the, the, the critical role that Hope was playing for Levon in, yeah, in, in previous lives. We don't really, I mean, we hope, but we don't need to because we can also verify, right? Hope but verify. I mean, you can kind of like check that it is operating the way you expect because we built the entire thing. You can stuff in some extra details probes over here and make sure that your packets are doing what you expect them to do, that they are going out the interface that you want. Um, and that's been extremely useful. Well, and then, and then also the, the fact that we, can, we have, I mean, we, we've got our own control plane. We're not trying to interact, we're not integrating with VMware or OpenStack or what have you. We've got our own control plane, which gives us the latitude to do whatever we need to do upstack to make this whole thing work, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, the, the kind of the brains of the, the operation are, are really 
uh, yeah, totally under our control, and we can really, you know, instruct the rest of the system, the entire rest of the system, to basically do whatever we want. Um, and so the, the, that part of the, the stack is, is called Nexus, appropriately, sort of the, the central point for, for everything, all roads are leading there. And so we, we kind of put all of our, you know, decision-making logic into that part of the system, um, and combined with something that Levon was hinting at earlier, which we call sagas, um, which are kind of this abstraction we have for running a bunch of steps uh, that are potentially dependent on previous steps, where you want to each one of them to succeed or fail atomically, and then if anything fails, you want to unwind the whole sequence of operations. Um, by writing things in terms of those sagas at the layer, level of Nexus, you can really kind of do some pretty complicated orchestration and not have fear that you're going to leave some, you know, half-finished state um, kind of laying around on some switch somewhere, right, that'll end up routing your packets off into a black hole. You won't really need to worry about that because we can make sure that we're unwinding the entire thing, um, you know, uh, all the way back to the to the beginning, which has been very, very useful, too. It, it, totally. It's And we've kind of been building each of these components and making each kind of one robust, and then being able to kind of put all of the pieces together, I think we've we've got new levels of appreciation of the, of both what we've done, and then the stuff that we've needed to go do to get that foundation working robustly. And then you do kind of wonder, like, what you, what would we have done without all this foundation? Like, all right, yeah, right, okay, I think we know the answer to that. It's not good. Uh, we we would have we would have struggled without having all this foundation in place. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting. You know, before I joined Oxide, I would have argued that we should not have built so much of this from the beginning, from the ground up. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah I sorry. Think You're, I, at, we're at sea now, Ben. We actually, well, yeah, exactly. we, we, well, so we're not you, going back to port. You'll like the second half of this, Brian. So I, <laughs> I, I have changed my opinion about this in a lot of ways. And I think part of the reason is that exactly what you're describing, that when you integrate uh, an existing piece of software, you know, We've all kind of hit this, right? Like, okay, there's a bug in this third-party code. Okay, well, what do I do? Do I fork it? Do I put a pull request up? You know, you have to deal with that sort of thing. But even beyond that, the ability to build in all of the instrumentation, all of the debugging, all of the sort of um, understanding that you want, uh, you can do all of that if you build the whole thing with all of the pieces in mind, right? I think that's a, a, a big thing uh, is to be able to, you know, put in the debugging knowing how you're going to use something, right, um, I think is, is, is extremely useful. And I, I think this has just been, um, yeah, it's, it, it's something I would not have expected to be so valuable at, when I joined Oxide. And I have yeah, it's been extraordinary. And I think, I mean, and you, we've got to be, and I think we, we've done so far a pretty good job of this, but it's like, you know, we can't just do it our own way for our own sake, obviously. We need to, you know, be be pretty careful about that. And we want to, you know, I thought, Rye, what you in Maybe it's worth expanding on a, a, what you've done in terms of the P4 compiler. But like, I think that that's kind of, the, the, that we did our own P4 compiler, I think kind of represents that that entire kind of oxide viewpoint in that we are strong believers in P4, love the fact that we've got a, a language that, that we did not invent P4, obviously. Um, P4 that it, um, exists beyond certainly oxide. But we are also unafraid to go our own way, provided that that's what makes sense. We're not going to go our own way just because we, we want to go our own way and everything. We, but but if, it, if it makes sense, we, we're going to do that. We're going to actually... And I, I also feel that like around here, by the time we're wondering whether it makes sense to go our own way, 
it, it's probably time to go our own way. We, we don't come to that decision lightly because we've got a lot of, we've got folks that, you know, know the, the peril of that or some, some fraction of the peril of that. Yeah, and we've gotten an absolutely huge amount of mileage out of that. I mean, because we've implemented our own P4 compiler, we can implement this in a way that is very helpful with our own debugging tools that we use for everything else up and down the stack. And so like one of the really neat things that we do with the P4 compiler is we actually emit static dtrace probes inside of the compiled P4. And so when you want to understand exactly how your P4 program is executing, it's not like, oh, I'm going to throw some like printfs in there and I'm going to do this and that and try to like figure out what's going on. It's just, I'm going to activate the probes that I need to activate uh, along that execution path uh, in the pipeline and understand exactly how that program is executing. And we've gotten a huge amount of mileage uh, out of just that, of, of integrating P4 with Dtrace to get visibility and get very fast development cycles. And so, I mean, that alone has just been such a massive win. Adam, am I the only one cheering up? I hope you're cheering up, Adam. I hope you got I think I already went through I mean, when, when I don't know if you'd seen this already, Brian, but when I, when, you know, I was I was geeking out with Rye over this code gen stuff, and to see that integration with Dtrace, and I, it was just it was amazing. Oh, I mean, it was just oh, it, it was just it, it, awesome it, to see. It's awesome with, oh, because it's also building on the work that you had done with Ben, uh, yeah. whatever that was, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, thirty five years ago. That's right. Thirty five years ago. That's no, but right. it was yeah, it's, many it's absolutely years using ago. the uh, the USDT crate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so uh, Ben was that that was one of the I think that was the first thing we did together, but it was fairly early in your tenure um, at Oxide. Yeah, was, it was to like, to six months in or something left. Yeah, yeah. So um, to, to to build a crate for embedding USDT probes in Rust, I think we we got to like a pretty nice sort of rusty spot with it. I think there's there's more that could be done to make it even more tightly integrated. One of the neat things was. Uh, as we were researching this, I don't know if I showed you this, Brian, but um, early, early, early in Rust's lifetime, there was an issue saying, like, build in D-trace probes. This was like a, oh. you know, like triple digit Rust issue or whatever <laughs> um, from from the from the earliest. They didn't obviously they didn't get get built, but uh, they were thinking about it, which was neat to see and and uh, and, and fun working on that crate. Yeah, that is great. And then, but to see that, I mean. Certainly, you did, you we could not have anticipated because this was I mean again this was very early in the lifetime of the company that that ultimately would be so useful because oh by the way we're going to have a P four compiler that we're going to write that's going to generate <laughs> that it's also going to emit these SCP probes it's going to be really important to debug how our networking protocols work like oh, huh? yeah. <laughs> oh and I, just because it's a theme that we've discerned in the Oxide and Friends show but I think there were moments when Ben and I were working on this where we kind of asked, you know, are people going to use this thing? Like, is this going to be important? Are we going right. to like, is, is this going to solve problems? Totally. Uh, and I think Ben like kind of slapped me. Cause it's like, of course it's going to solve problems. You dummy. But uh, uh, I definitely slapped you. I mean, maybe ben also slapped you. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think that's like, whatever. It's always true. Like the, the, these tools that we build are, are always helpful. And if there's something you take away, it's like, go build those tools. And I think it's always good that we're kind of like we we are self aware enough to know like God do I might should I really be polishing this turd? I mean I'm going to put another like I'm going to put another sheen on this thing. Is this the right decision? But um, I don't know if Ben slapped you. I definitely recall slapping you at him because you're just like, <laughs> is this the right thing you're working on? I'm like this is definitely the right thing to be working on because we are. I mean they, you know it's on the 
the the the tin, we are oxide. We are doing a lot in rust, and we are going to continue. And actually, Rai, what maybe you could speak a little bit to that because I, mean, I don't know. I think you've done some rust prior to oxide, but I feel like uh, certainly more rust at oxide. Um, and how has that experience been in terms of building the 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 P four compiler and soft MPU and so on? It's been uh, so. I mean, before oxide, I had done a very small amount of rust. I'm trying to. Remember the Rust? I think I I wrote some like some TTY code in Linux and Rust, and just like a few very small things. We in my group we had just started to explore using Rust uh, for a few different things. We had thought about we one of our major products was an internet network emulator, uh, and we had built that in C plus plus over many years, and we had kicked around the idea of doing that in Rust, but never actually actually got around to doing that. They may have done that now that, that I'm not there anymore. Um, but yeah, so very little, very little Rust experience. But I mean, the Rust ecosystem has, I can't imagine a more perfect ecosystem to do this work in. Um, a, because, you know, it's it's compiled natively, so we don't have to worry about any of the performance issues that would come with, like, if you're compiling to, like, Go or something else like that. Um, the ecosystem around code generation in Rust is just flat out amazing. Like the quote crates and all of the that tools that are available yeah. to, to generate code are just like, I have no doubt that the compiler, the code generation stage of the compiler that we've written is an order of magnitude less complex than it would be without those strong code mm -hmm. generation tools. I mean, and Adam, you've used these tools significantly and uh, drop shot and a lot of the the tools that, that you've put together as well. And I mean, these, the, they're just incredible uh, code yeah, generation I mean, tools. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that in other languages, when you're generating code, when I'm generating code in other languages, I feel like I'm 100% doing it wrong. And it's going to be this undebuggable pile. And in Rust, it's like, I'm, you know, only 20% sure I'm doing it wrong. And it's a semi-debuggable -de pile. But it, it, the amount of time it saves and the sort of elegance and testability of it is just phenomenal. And we are using that up and down the stack. We are using its ability to generate code everywhere. And it, yeah. it, it, and you, we, we kind of put, we, we say hygienic macros is kind of a placeholder for it. But it is really so much more than hygienic macros. I mean, it is just the, I mean, it's, it's as you say, it's the quote crate, it's build RS. I mean, there's so much that you can go do to actually make this comprehensible and extraordinarily powerful. Uh, so it's, yeah, the, the, right, that is awesome to, and no surprise that you're making use of things like quote. Yeah, and one of the one of the the tricks that I pulled from Adam's book was in the progenitor uh, tool that we have. That basically you can point a Rust macro at an open API spec, and you just like instantly get all of the code that implements the client for that API spec in the Rust code that you're you're directly working with. Uh, and we wound up doing that same trick for P4 code. So if you wanted to have P4 pipeline code directly used from your Rust code, you just say use P4. Uh, point it at your P4 code, that'll kick in the compiler library, compile it, or splat all that generated Rust code directly into your current workspace, and boom, you have you have access to a P4 program pipeline right then and there. It's really cool. I don't think I, I yeah, I don't think you I know you did that. That's awesome. Yeah, and and, and right, it's only hiding like tens of thousands of lines of code <laughs> that it's emitted behind that macro. Right. Yeah. It's it, it's uh, yeah. It, it's not a small amount of code. <laughs> yeah. But that's really cool, right? Because I mean, it, 
I mean, this is where, and I think this is part of why we're so bullish on P4 and programmable networking, a programmable switch, programmable fabric, because when you make that easy to, to integrate into other programs, you can begin to use P4 in like lots and lots of other places that are not merely, that, that are not just a switch. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I was, I was doing something the other day where I, I needed something like TCP dump or Snoop like, but like not quite TCP dump, not quite Snoop. I needed a little bit more programmability. I didn't want to have to go write a whole bunch of like header code by hand, but I knew I had the vast majority of the headers that I needed to interact with already in our sidecar P4 program. So I just grabbed a whole bunch of that code, imported it into my Rust code, wrote like another hundred lines of Rust, and I had the exact observability program that I needed. And so it was, oh, it was very nice in that regard. That is really, really neat. Yeah, I got the ability to just quickly spin like an as you say like a new tool like i just i i want to actually get i that is really really nifty and so what are you know someone kind of asked earlier it's like what are some of the use cases that what like when we kind of you know look forward what are some of the things that we can go do kind of controlling this thing end to end what, what are some of the things we can kind of deliver for folks who are actually using the infrastructure Sorry, you broke up a little bit there. I think my internet blipped. Sorry, it, 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 folks were asking us about the about what, what are some of the things that what are some of the use cases um, for an integrated switch, and what are the kinds of things that we can go do when we can control the stack end to end. Oh man, uh, <laughs> it's you know you 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 get to kind of move heaven and earth, um, and I mean when I guess it. There's so many directions to go with that question. Um, I mean, when we're talking about how we integrate with our customers' networks, which I think is the most like directly visible thing that that we're going to be seeing, um, we're talking about uh, having strong BGP implementations that can interact with uh, upstream networks from you know the size of like standard corporate BGP networks that are kind of like EVPN flavored to um, interacting with uh, internet connection endpoints, uh, connecting directly to CDNs and colos. Uh, if we have customers that want to be able to do tunneling, uh, whether it's through like FireGuard or Geneve or VXLAN to be able to get to remote sites to get to other racks or other parts of their network, like we can implement all of this uh, as, as needed according to demand on the product and start to build up a more robust network stack uh, that is basically allowing us to evolve the platform in any way that we see fit without being constrained by a, a fixed function ASIC. And, and right, you know, I, I've heard you get very excited about DDM and ab about kind of multipathing and the kinds of things we can do when we control all ends of the conversation. Can you talk about that a bit? Ah, yes, that's, that, that's a very good point, because that's, that's something that this infrastructure actually does allow us to do that is is one of the killer apps uh, for the, the Oxide network uh, infrastructure. And so, to, so DDM stands for delay-driven multipath, uh, and it's our routing protocol uh, that allows the sleds to communicate, uh, the compute sleds to communicate with each other, uh, both within a particular rack and across racks. But before we talk about DDM, we need to talk a little bit about the Oxide network architecture. Uh, which is something that uh, Robert Mastaki has put together and that the network team is collectively uh, working to implement. And there are 
several features of this networking architecture that allow us to build very robust uh, routing protocols. And uh, something that Arian was talking about earlier is that, you know, a lot of like your Arista uh, and Cisco switches like have, you know, the alphabet soup of protocols associated with them. But at the end of the day, when you're building like a scalable infrastructure, you want to simplify things and you really just want to focus on doing IP routing. Uh, and when we're talking about living at layer three of the network, we just want to get packets from host A to host B in the most effective way possible. And so when we look at the Oxide network architecture, we have an underlay overlay architecture where our compute sleds are essentially communicating over a physical underlay uh, and then customer instances and the um, interfaces that are in those virtual machines uh, communicate over overlay networks. Our underlay is a pure IPv6 underlay. There's no IPv4 there. Uh, and then overlays are built on Geneve. So we have UDP encapsulation going to Geneve. And then there can be IPv4 or IPv6 uh, packets inside of those uh, encapsulated uh, Geneve headers. Uh, every single one of our compute sleds is summarized by an IPv6 uh, slash 64. Um, so that reduces our network fan out a little bit in terms of the routing tables that we have to consider. Uh, and there's no broadcast domains. And so if folks are here that have done large VXLAN deployments uh, or eVPN deployments, every single address that one of the customer instances gets is a slash 32 for IPv4 or a slash 128 for IPv6. And so since we have no broadcast domains that we need to push out over our layer three networks, this gets rid of at least like half of the really, really nasty uh, overlay underlay problems. And we can really just focus on layer three routing. Um, and so with that in mind, like what are the, what are the goals that we have for layer three routing uh, in the rack? And something important here also is that the rack is explicitly multipath. So there are two switches in every single rack and every single compute sled in the rack is connected to both of those switches. And so every time a, a compute sled is sending out a packet, it has to make a decision about what is the best next hop to take. Uh, and that's where uh, our routing protocol comes in. And so taking a look at this problem and saying, what are the most, like before we even start to think about like specific protocols and things like that, we have to ask ourselves, what are the most important properties of this routing protocol? And first and foremost, we wanna be fault tolerant. We have a multipath physical network, so we really wanna take advantage of that. We want anything in the network within reason to be able to fail and the network's just gonna keep on ticking. We can lose any link, we can lose any particular port, we could even lose an entire switch. And this, this network is just gonna continue to function and the TCP sessions will all stay alive there in customer instances and things like this uh, and, and we'll be okay. Um, the next thing that we wanted to focus on was flexible topology construction. Uh, and this means putting customers in the driver's seat of how they interconnect their racks uh, and not constraining them to particular topologies. And so like one of the routing protocols we looked at early on was Rift, uh, which is uh, under the IETF standardization process now. Uh, it stands for routing and fat trees. There are a lot of really attractive things about that protocol, but it's also very specific to fat trees. And we didn't really want to constrain ourselves to, um, to that particular type of topology. Um, Another thing was scalability. Uh, we wanted to be able to scale up to eventually like hyperscale size networks. And so that put us squarely in like a distance vector, path vector, routing protocol type of place. Uh, and then finally, we wanna do load balancing uh, at the speed of the network uh, at packet level granularity. And so when you look at 
multi-path routing and you look at how it's done today, if you just take a simple example of say, I have an IBGP network uh, and I have a couple of paths that are coming from my BGP peers that I can make a decision on in the data plane, how do I make that decision? So that typically comes through ECMP today, uh, but we know for data center workloads, there are significant drawbacks with ECMP in terms of both uh, micro congestion and elephant flows. And so with the way that ECMP basically works is that you're taking a hash over uh, parts of the layer four packet and deciding based on that hash what your next top is going to be or what your complete path is going to be. And depending on how the hashing works out, you can have what's called these elephant flows that are these high volume flows that just kind of squat on a particular path in the network and they take up all the bandwidth and they, they cause lots of flow completion, completion times for smaller flows that really need to happen much faster. Uh, and then there's micro congestion that can have micro congestion that can happen uh, when you have things like storage networks and storage fabrics that are sitting uh, on top of these networks that create congestion in like microsecond type of windows that can really degrade the ability to get to the aggregate bandwidth capacity of the network. So uh, these are problems that we really wanted to look at and solve with our routing protocols. But in order to do this, we had to be able to measure the network. Like ECMP is kind of like a hatch and pray type of approach. Like you're gonna hash all your packets and we're just gonna hope that the hashing gives a nice even distribution, like our traffic matrices are even enough so ECMP is gonna work out well. But we know from a lot of research that that's just not the case for a lot of data center workloads. And so what we did was we uh, did a lot of literature survey and a lot of reading uh, into a lot of the SIGCOM, like ACM SIGCOM conference, uh, congestion control papers and routing control uh, routing papers. And what we came up with was uh, we drew a lot of inspiration from a uh, 2017 paper uh, called Drill from the University of Wisconsin, which talks about micro load balancing and how you can do that really effectively without completely murdering TCP in terms of reorder buffers and things like that. Uh, and then a 2020 SIGCOM paper from Google called SWIFT, which uses delay uh, as a leading indicator of congestion. And this is more of a congestion control paper of uh, saying, you know, how do we get rid of some of the sharper edges of TCP and data center networks? But what we've done is taken these two things and kind of combined them and say, if we can measure the network uh, at line rate, uh, and this is where P4 comes in because we want to be able to uh, add additional telemetry information to packets as they cross the network. Can we at every single sled inside the rack for every single destination that it's talking to say at this point in time, this is what the delay looks like to that particular destination and then load balance based on that destination in such a way that I'm not going to reorder things so badly that TCP is just going to have a really, really bad time. Uh, and P4 is very instrumental in doing that because it gives us the flexibility to add this telemetry information to packets in IPv6. We're actually using IPv6 extension headers uh, as packets are crossing the network. And we can actually make routing decisions uh, in sub round trip time uh, based on what's happening uh, and avoid micro congestion uh, within the network and hopefully reach the aggregate capacity of the network without sacrificing flow completion times. And so we think uh, this is a very novel approach to solving this problem and it is fundamentally enabled by having a programmable data plane and doing hardware software co-design that allows us to actually do this in a way that wouldn't completely tank performance. Uh, and, and, so that's and you you just touched on it, right? But you know, if we were, uh, if we didn't control, if, or if in an environment 
where you know I got my switch from one vendor and my NIC from another and my my servers from a, a third. Is this attainable, or is it only because of that integration throughout? I mean, it, it's very much for the from the integration throughout. I mean, if we didn't have programmability on the switches, if we didn't really understand the data paths uh, and how they're working from you know our host operating system that's taking packets from the virtual machines, taking them out to the T6s, understanding the paths from the T6s uh, or the multiple paths from the T6s to the Tofinos and how all that's working, being able to do symmetric routing for TCP acknowledgement so we understand latency as it's actually evolving across the network, we, we wouldn't be able to do any of that. It, it's it's very simple. We need, to, we need to add these telemetry headers into these packets as a traversal network. If you didn't do that, if you can do that in the ASIC, the only place you can do that is at the host. So those are the only points where you can make them decisions based on that telemetry data and so and so you have to wait until if you wanted this on any other piece of hardware you would have to wait for some standard to start to exist and then every other vendor to or or at least one vendor to implement this in an asic as a fixed function and then you're and then hope that they got it right the first time around um whereas we we can freely experiment with this until it works and then uh, and then roll it out because it and we can even we can even develop it further once it is even in the in the deployed sides of the customers because we can reprogram this thing over and over again. I mean, sure, we have to take downtime for it, but it, there's an upgrade path to future versions of this protocol as we learn more and develop it more. And that is just not possible with a with a with a fixed ASIC from someone else. Yeah, I mean, it's just extraordinary in terms of what it all adds up to. And I think, it, you know, the kind of the, the lead in on P4, you can see why P4 is so extremely important, right? Just for all those things you mentioned, though, that we can't wait for, for a fixed function here. We need to be able to do this entirely dynamically. And, you know, right, I mean, you talked about a bunch of things. I mean, what I, lo I love uh, elephant flows. Um, and, but with micro congestion, do folks have, how do people observe microcongestion today? How do you know that you've got microcongestion in the network other than like, I am sad and I don't know why? I mean, is this something, because I mean, I think we're, we're also going to be able to allow people to actually observe where that microcongestion exists, right? Yeah. And so like uh, with the drill paper, for example, one of the ways that they were able to uh, observe microcongestion, and I, I'll have to go back and look, they might have been using P4 programmable switches, but they were able to uh, observe queue depth uh, on the switches as packets were traversing the network. And so they could use that as a proxy for congestion as packets yeah. were traversing. Um, and there's been a lot of research, uh, and this was referenced in the SWIFT paper as well, if people are interested in taking a look at the papers, um, in storage fabrics. And so people that are building NVMe storage fabrics where there uh, is a high level of sensitivity to latency, um, they were able to basically the way that they measure delay in SWIFT allows them to uh, understand where congestion is building up in the network on a packet by packet basis. Uh, and so then from that point, you can build a story uh, in terms of this is how my storage fabric is operating. This is how these latency measurements are unfolding across the network. And we see these extremely short duration latency events. Um, and even though they're extremely short uh, in terms of their duration, like you might have a high frequency of them and that can completely tank performance as, you know, TCP is kicking in and other parts of the network reacting to this. Uh, and it really pays to just be able to get ahead of that uh, before TCP implementations start reacting to that congestion. 
It, it totally. When, and we you know we were talking about when we were talking about the, the measurement two years in the making, talking about all the crazy physics required to deliver this incredible link and how, you know, Adam, you know, we were kind of joking about, meanwhile, we're up here, you know, waiting for, uh, you know, an incorrect timeout or a multi-millisecond timeout, but TCP retransmits are brutal for, I mean, the second you've decided that like, I've had to give up on that packet, I'm going to have to resend it. Now this unbelievable dragster that can go so quickly. Now you're waiting milliseconds, tens of milliseconds, hundreds of milliseconds before you retransmit. And that's the stuff that's going to have major upstack ramifications. So the the ability to minimize that microcongestion and those retransmits is just going to be extraordinary. And I think it's also emblematic, right, of our the kind of the the rack level view that we're taking. I mean, one of the things I know that both you and Levon had done in previous lives is looked at smart necks. And I was loved to, I, I, not to not to get you going on a rant, but uh, you know. It, <laughs> Smart necks are kind of the antithesis of our approach, honestly, where I, I, I feel, I mean, maybe that's phrasing it a bit too strongly, but where we are, it's, it's not a rack level approach. It, it, and it is, it puts a lot more complexity in places that are already struggling with complexity. Levon, I imagine it requires a lot more hope, although with smart necks, it's just a matter of like actually getting the parts is hard enough. Um, and, but you're, you're, you're pushing the intelligence to a part that is actually doesn't have great visibility. So it can be, Really, really, I mean, to me, it's like smart necks are not the solution to the problem. We've got to like actually think about this from the the entire rack, the entire network to actually solve the entire problem. And I feel that like, right, this is a just a huge lurch forward in that regard. Well, smart necks yeah, can solve so- some part. Sorry. Like there's some workloads that do make sense in like if you if you had a NIC that could do line rate encryption on a per flow basis, which I don't know if that exists already or not, or if, if it's tractable, but that would be super interesting because that you can't do in a switch like this. And you also don't want to do that on a C- You may not want to do that on a CPU and software. So that's where a SmartNIC would provide value. But that, that's... Yeah, and I'll tell you where else a SmartNIC would indisputably provide value. I'm in a very cold room right now, and I could actually use a SmartNIC as a space heater in here. A little just space like, heater, just yeah, warm, sure. Like, yeah, a little, a little 75 a little watts to your, uh, to your room. That, that, oh, yeah, oh exactly. Put, that's you put your feet on that, room. it's very comfortable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's like warmer than a cat. A little uncomfortable, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think with the SmartNIC thing, so there's so many layers of complexity here, right? So we have like a we have a a network stack that's running inside of the virtual machine of the guest that the customer is running that that is going out of that virtual machine through a Viona interface to the the host operating system stack, uh, or in our case, to OPTE that is then encapsulating that and sending it over UDP to its final destination. So we we have the behavior of the internal TCP session, and then we have that, you know, somewhat masked by the the outer UDP in Geneva sessions that are kind of encapsulating that and carrying it to where it needs to go. And um, I mean, I think what we really want is a um, a more programmable NIC that can integrate as a whole with our overall network architecture. Uh, and so if we can get to a place where our NICs can be programmable on the data plane, similar to how our switch is programmable on the yeah. data plane, uh, then I think we're going to start to be getting into a, a pretty good place. But uh, in terms of like these smart necks with like the ARM cores and you're connecting a computer to computer through PCI and the programmability is actually quite limited. Like I, there, I don't see the benefit for that for, for our architecture. Yeah. And then the, uh, yeah, Levon is saying that like actually the smart necks are just not fast enough to do this well. Which is another, and also then you've got the, the, 
can we actually just make them show up too? Lots of lots of challenges with smart decks. So not to pick on smart decks too much, but um, the uh, but in, in terms of, of the you know so kind of you look at this kind of at the aggregate level and the ability to get uh, DDM actually deployed. Um, what, what are kind of some of the challenges to actually make all of the stuff work right? Oh man, um, so. Just getting all the, so coming to Oxide was my first real brush with P4 programming. And before I knew it, I was writing a compiler. So I really jumped into the deep end. Um, but getting, so P4, or so DDM uh, has uh, a lot of like data plane components to it, including uh, being able to modify the tables, which allow us to make decisions at line rate which in vanilla P4 is not really a thing, but it is a thing in Tofino P4. Um, so they, they have these uh, particular register types that you can attach to a table key, and that allows you to update that table key over time, which means if we can attach that register state to a router table key, uh, then, then we can automatically keep a delay uh, associated with that, 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 that key, um, or sorry, that routing entry. And so... That was definitely a challenge getting up and going because it wasn't like uh, part of P4 proper. It's kind of like this extension, this really nice extension uh, of Tofino that allows us to do this. Uh, that was a significant challenge. Uh, getting DDM up and running on the endpoints uh, in the Alumos kernel uh, has been a very interesting adventure of deciding where is this going to plug in into mm. the overall operating system network stack because there's so many different choices and we're not trying to take like the BPDK approach where it's just like this ad hoc thing off to the side like we want this to be a part of the operating system network stack in a very efficient way and we're currently talking to like our vendors about like our uh, Chelsea uh, about, you know, what's the best way to be able to offload some of this uh, in terms of just pushing it off onto the NIC so we have uh, less overhead in terms of sending like acknowledgement messages out uh, and things like that. And when we are sending acknowledgement messages out, like, can we piggyback on existing TCP sessions if we can snoop that far down into the packet and would that provide advantages? And so there are so many choices about how to implement this. I mean, the the mm. theory is so is sound behind it in terms of what the potential is to achieve in our networks, but the 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 plethora of choices that we have to make along the way are uh, it, it's a large mountain of them. And so just trying to uh, trying to diligently just kind of document everything as we go and see, you know, articulate why we made particular choices and then maybe we need to revisit this choice later on down the road and kind of like building a decision tree. Uh, so we can, when once we land with our initial implementation, try to figure out like how did we get here, um, and if we need to go back and look at something that is not quite performing on the level that we need it to, like how do we get back to that point? Yeah, and uh, you know, when, whenever you've got all the, these kind of many degrees of freedom, it can be really uh, it, it's a, it's a challenge, right? It could be a challenge to figure out what is the the, the right layer of abstraction to, to 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 tack into. I feel like this is a this is a common challenge for us. Um, the, and then, so, um, and as we kind of look at to some of the other, uh, I mean, cause one of the other things you mentioned is the ability to, uh, really express the oxide rack in, in a customer's deployment. Um, could you speak a little bit to, to, to that and what that would, would look like and some of the things that we can go build to better integrate this in with a, with a customer's network? Yeah. Um, so 
I mean, coming from a from a background of, of deploying uh, fairly large network systems, like it's when when you do this in like a co-location facility or something like that, it's it's a matter of you know you have to set up your firewalls and then you have to set up your routers that are going to be interacting with your network provider, your CDN, uh, and then you have to set up all of your management networks to be able to manage all of that stuff just in case your your primary network providers are going out and. Uh, then you you log into your switches and use whatever command line interface that your your switches are supporting. And you know, I recently actually did this for Oxide. Like I'm I'm putting together our colo presence, uh, and <laughs> yeah. and so like I, I'm just reminded of how painful all this is. And like you're logging right. into like your your firewall BMCs, and it's like this weird redfish thing that they've put in place that doesn't actually work as good as the ITMI thing. And so you wind up like scrapping that path, and then. Right, I'm switches. glad. I I know that Josh Cluo is going to be glad that someone else in Oxide is having to suffer with BMCs right now. I feel like there's so much. Josh has been suffering so much with BMCs. It's like, well, Josh, we start a computer company. It's like, yes, I know. I want to run those computers instead of stuck running <laughs> this computer because our computers aren't ready yet. But uh, yeah, yeah, so I've 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 joined joined Josh in the the BMC Fun Club. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, you have your switches that you're deploying, and even though you've bought them from same vendors, they have slightly different CLIs that don't take the exact same commands. And and so this this really, like, so this this painful experience, like, really highlights, like, with the Oxide rack, you, you, you buy it, you ship it into where you're going to deploy it, and then you use this nice API to set everything up. And that includes setting up BGP, or if you're using static routing, that includes setting up static routing. Like it's a it's a multi-path HA setup first type of scenario where like the architecture really encourages people to use both of the switches on the 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 I guess we're not top of rack, we're like middle of rack switches. Uh, so using both of those middle middle rack switches, uh, and then using something like BGP to be able to peer with both of those switches and having like a good HA setup, or you can use static routing uh, if if that's where you want to go. But like the overall experience of just deploy this whole unit and then setting up networking is not this out of band like side thing. It's just a fundamental part of setting up the rack, and I think that's just going to be a, a really eye opening experience for people. Well, I think it, it just the ability to get the rack in and get it actually functional in a customer's network quickly, and that it, there it takes part of the challenge. And and already you're making mention some of the discussions that have been going on around on-prem infrastructure and folks not really realizing that actually with the poor anemic state of the art today, it takes a long time to get actual vendor gear in and get it working. The hyperscalers don't have this problem because of all the work, Arian, that you mentioned that they've done on the networking. They are able to roll it in and be able to, to actually turn it on and turn it up and and deploy it. And Rai, I think the vision is that we're going to be able to do something awfully similar with with Oxide and the, the, the time from that rack arriving. Uh, provide the, the the biggest challenge is going to be the, the the loading dock and making sure that the doors are high enough. Which, by the way, is not a small challenge. Just to <laughs> emphasize that this, this thing's a monster; it's pretty big. But provided it can, if, it, once it's physically in the DC, getting this thing connected with a customer's network is hopefully going to be pretty quick because of all of this programmability that we've been able to build into it. Yeah, and it's something we're putting a huge amount of effort in. Um, I mean, followers of, of Oxide probably know we have our, our RFD process, our, our requests for discussion. Uh, and uh, I mean, our customer network integration RFD has to be some like one of the most discussed 
RFDs that we, we have at this point. It's to the point where <laughs> GitHub has difficulty loading it because there's so many comments. Yeah. Um, and we've spent a lot of time thinking about this and we really are trying to make like a very turnkey solution. So you can, you can just connect with BGP or whatever routing, dynamic routing protocol that you're using to connect to your upstream provider uh, and, you know, just get going. And it's and boy, it it feels like we are tantalizingly close here to the dream. And you know, it's this is a huge testament to everything, Ryan, that you and and Levon and Ben and Ryan and every Aryan have done. I mean, there's been such a uh, a broad team effort to get all of this stuff, not just uh, conceived of, but 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 there are so many gritty details required to get this thing implemented and. I love the. Uh, hopefully, folks will check out the the P4 compiler that you've done, and the and just P4 in general. I think that it has been really at the the epicenter of what we've done here in, in terms of the programmable network. Really, really exciting stuff and stuff. You know, and I remember that you know when we when we started the company, one of the concerns we had is like, boy, if we do our own switch, that the the when we talk to to potential customers. The, we're going to be basically picking a fight with the networking team because they're going to have their own kind of preferred switch vendor. And I think that what we have found instead actually is that we are delighting folks because they are excited that we've actually built the network that they have wanted to build. Um, and I, Ryan, hopefully I'm not overstepping there, but it certainly feels that way that a lot of these decisions we've made come from, from your wisdom and Levon's wisdom and all of the wisdom that we've accumulated over the years and it really feels like we're building what people want to be able to, to, to run. Yeah, I think a lot of the customer meetings that I've been in, I've been bracing for that impact, bracing for the, <laughs> oh man, like here's this weird thing you're trying to put into my network. Totally. Like, why is it not just the this Arista thing or this Mellanox thing? Um, and we we haven't really gotten that feedback yet. I'm still bracing for it every single meeting, uh, but it, it hasn't arrived yet. It hasn't arrived yet. And in part, like, you know, the switch vendors aren't exactly helping themselves out. So it's, yeah, it has not arrived. But um, I think that, you know, that, and part of the reason it's not arrived is because people are are, are seeing that the, the value this is actually going to bring. So it is very, very exciting stuff. Well, I, you know, I think, um, Adam, I know you've got a, a, to- that, a, a child to run to, no longer a toddler. A toddler when we started Oxide and Friends. Now, really. Uh, I know. Once a that, toddler, now a boy who and, interrupted with his lightsaber demanding I play with him. That's right. And pretty soon he's going to be like hassling you for the car keys. So, um, <laughs> but this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, again, Rye and Lon and, and Ben I mean, and Arian, great to have you here. Great to see this thing actually turning into uh, coming to fruition, and so many of these of these things beginning to really compound on themselves. And I just feel lucky to be a part of it. I think as we all do. Um, and thank you so much for for sharing this with us, and looking forward to to getting it out there. Yeah, absolutely, wonderful to be here. Awesome. All right, thanks everyone, um, and we we will see you next time.